You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're joined by Dr. Daniel Vogt, a leading researcher in the field of autism spectrum disorder. Dr. Vogt's work focuses on understanding the genetic and cellular aspects of autism, which can be incredibly valuable for parents and caregivers looking to support their children effectively. Join us as we delve into this fascinating world of research and learn how it can make a positive impact on the lives of children with autism and their families. Dr. Vogt, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, appreciate you having me. Now, we're excited to, to talk about this subject because quite frankly, there's a lot that I need to learn through this. And I think that there's a lot that maybe as clinicians, as family members, that we can start using a little bit more effectively and immerse into our understanding of treatment models. But before we get into that, one of the questions I, I really want to kind of present to all of our listeners is that this is this is a field that we all get into for a passion. We we start looking at the research, we start looking at the treatment because there's there's something about autistic disorder and about the the patient or the, the children, the adults that are that are working through some of the challenges or excelling around some of the some of the exceptions that brought us to this field. So what sparked your interest? A lot of it was um, it really came about later in life. I I had the opportunity in high school to um, interact with a lot of people in the arts. Um, always wanted to figure out what I wanted to do. And at first, I thought I wanted to be an elementary education teacher. So I went to school for that. And I really loved it. I loved you know learning about young kids developing and playing with each other and just having a fun time. Um, when I was in school, though, for college, I, I got really interested in the biology, um, thinking, how do, how do our brains develop? What's different about us? And, and I wasn't even thinking about autism at the time. This was uh, mid-90s. And um, I started taking classes and getting into research. And I had the opportunity to go into a lab. And I really started thinking about, what is it that gets me excited about you know, science? And I, I just I was so curious about the brain. I just want to know how the brain develops and how it works. So luckily, I got accepted into grad school at Case Western uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, and I just absolutely loved the neuroscience department there. And it really started to make me think about um, differences and diseases and things like this. And I thought, what perfect thing to study other than how our brains are different in autism. Um, so that's what really sparked my interest. And I think what really got me the opportunity was going to University of California, San Francisco, where I had a wonderful mentor that allowed me to actually start studying um, genes that were implicated in autism. I think that, I mean, the the study of the, the brain itself is one thing. The genetic piece is, is a whole different world. But mm -hmm. as you as you went through the journey at Case Western and on your way to uh, UCSF, is the idea of how the brain functions is there are going to be ways with any of us where you know our our brain functioning helps us to excel in certain areas and creates some barriers that we need to be able to work through mm -hmm. are some of those items i mean what did you learn about aut autistic disorder in in specific that you started to see you know there's some there's some differences here that are causing for some of the exceptions for what we would 
had labeled neurotypical at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're right. It's, you know, all of us are going to develop a little differently, but <clears throat> the way I like to think of it is I, I view it as, you know, our DNA basically is like our recipe book. It's all of our organs are going to use it a little differently, but we have to follow the recipe basically. And our, our brains do that really well. Um, as they're developing though, I think what I learned really early on is that there's a balance. Um, the brain doesn't just fire a bunch of information constantly. There's, there's both excitation and inhibition, and these two have to be really well balanced in the brain for our functions um, to be appropriate. And when, that, when there's a misbalance, um, that is really where we start to see things like neuropsychiatric symptoms. I think one of the first things that um, my mentor at UCSF got really interested in is why is there an elevated rate of epilepsy and seizures? And that that's the perfect example of this imbalance. Um, there's too much excitation in the brain. Um, and does that cause autism symptoms or is it a symptom of autism itself? We're still not really sure about that. But, um, but yeah, I, I think the key is balance and how do we develop that balance and how do the genes instruct you know, everything to be balanced and work together well? Well, maybe we can break down some of those terms then. I mean, um, when, when you think about excitation, um, <laughs> What would what would that what would that look like? Not only in in the brain itself, but also maybe in somebody's uh, somebody's behavior or thought patterns. I mean, what what does excitation create for us that's maybe more visible for a parent? Yeah, um, think about our senses. So our brain has to both interpret the world and then act upon it, and when we say excitation, what we're really thinking about just with seeing the world is light comes in, it basically turns on our neurons so they can tell the next neuron in the chain to basically get excited for a little bit and send this message. And it's that message that gives us perception. But excitation alone, if you think about it, if that stimulus was always on, you would see the same picture constantly. <laughs> so something has to come in and also turn it off so the next frame in the movie can play. Otherwise, you're just going to have a still that you're looking at. And so each time our neurons get, or our, our brains get excited in different areas, um, that's what leads to the sensory. And then we can choose to act on that um, by um, sending excitation basically from our nerves to our muscles and having that act upon it. Um, when when excitation is not balanced in different areas of the brain, say in your motor area or in your visual area, um, with autism, there's uh, also an elevated um, sensory experiences. And we're thinking that in places like auditory, your, your hearing or visual, you know, you may not be able to dampen down some of these signals. So it might be a little too much um, to take in when, when a normal stimulus for someone else uh, is perceived. So, I mean, just even the what you might see in some of the presentations with autism disorder where somebody is pulling away from an environment is that this could potentially be part of their genetic profile is that, you know, there's there's a lot of excitation going on. There's a lot of input. There's so much arousal and that the only way to be able to remove it is to figure out some coping mechanisms to withdraw from what's occurring. And this is the, the whole idea of how the brain functions is fascinating. But when you're when you're meeting with families, and mm -hmm. a lot of times families hear the what to do, 
the, you know, what's the next step? What is treatment? What am I going to be doing to work on things? But the why is important. And when you're talking to a family, does some of this click as far as like, hold on, well, now I understand a little bit more about why my child might be covering their ears more frequently or might uh, be a little bit more tangential in thought. Like, does this does this help to paint a picture for them? I think the more knowledge, the better. Um, and the families I've interacted with, they really do want to understand and know as much as they can. Um, I find too, like learning from other families, every little anecdotal thing that you encounter or see, um, tell your doctors, tell researchers, because we learn a lot from the parents as well. Um, and it helps us put our, what we're doing into context. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, our encounters here have been really good. Um, we have a children's hospital uh, right next to us that diagnoses, um, you know, a lot of uh, monogenic disorders and other um, neurodevelopmental issues here. And really just knowing if it's genetic or not, just knowing what the mutation is sometimes is a big deal because then it gives them a little more uh, ability to try to figure out what is the next step. And, and in our field in general, when I mean, when you're looking at the whole domain of those that are involved with the treatment for autistic disorders, that mm -hmm. one of the biggest hallmarks is, is that we should all be strength based. And I would imagine some of the understanding of the genes effect on, on neurology and how the brain functions is that as clinicians, even you can kind of see, you know, these are potential strengths. These are barriers. What are some of the what are some of the strengths that could come from some of these uh, genetic differences that might help somebody in parts of their development or parts of their engagement in the world around them? That's a great question, because, um, again, knowledge is power. I think um, if you actually and the good thing that I've noticed since being here is since the, it's getting cheaper and cheaper to do this, since now some insurance companies are also helping out. Um, genetic testing is becoming a lot more common. Um, but say, for example, you go into the clinic and you're diagnosed with autism, you have, you also have seizures and some other issues. If you come back, so there's some mutations that might come back and there actually might be FDA approved drugs for them. That's, that's a big thing that, that we're getting into now. There's certain um, signaling pathways. So in all of our cells, there are different proteins that come out of this recipe book our DNA. And some of them are in families that do the same thing. Um, so for example, there's a family of proteins um, that regulate this small, uh, not small, uh, this kinase called mTOR. And I know I'm getting jargony here, but um, mTOR is really important for cellular growth, um, synapse formation, a lot of the, the things that make a brain basically rely on mTOR. And it's very important during growth, but then it has to be shut off in adulthood because um, you, you don't want to overgrow once you're, you've made it to the, you know, what you should be as an adult. Um, the, the thing, though, is there are inhibitors to this pathway and there's trials right now. They're looking um, when to deliver mTOR inhibitors into animals. Um, and th there's hope that stuff like this repurposed drugs might be something um, that you can use. But the first step in that is actually knowing if you have a genetic mutation. And it, once you know that, you can start understanding. That's where um, like my lab and others come in. We try to figure out what these genes do and if there's anything that can regulate them. And if there is, as that knowledge builds, we'll, get, we'll hopefully get better and better at this. 
and fun therapeutics. The 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 direct relation to the the child's life from what I'm what I'm hearing right now is that it it is information, it is guidance, it is giving you potentially a profile of you know this these are the possibilities. So yes. if you're seeing this genetic profile uh, of a specific um, and, and maybe we'll get into some of the, the profiles that, that make more sense. But uh, you see a specific profile. It might be one that you're saying, hey, you know what? You might be at risk for seizures. You might be at risk for other medical conditions that maybe we should be aware of. Maybe we should start some form of um, treatment that gives us an option to be able to reduce that risk over time. Um is that are those the conversations? Are those the, what your research right now is kind of delving into and moving in that direction? Is you know what's next? That's yeah, that's a lot of what we're doing right now. Um, so we we study my lab actually studies a lot of the genes that um, are involved in this mTOR pathway. Um, we're trying to figure out the extent to which they act inside cells so that we for, first understand what could manifest. Um, and what brain regions are really critical. Um, and then can they be treated with this um, rapamycin or its um, analogs that have come out? Um, <clears throat> but what we're also doing is we're trying to understand the genes that don't have a lot known about them. Uh, for example, there's a gene called WAC. Um, it is a very, I would call it the most generic Lego piece of all the proteins because it has two parts to it that can interact with other proteins, but otherwise we don't really know what it does. And I just met with um, the families not too long ago in St. Louis for their second clinic. And a lot of the questions they ask are, you know, what do we know? What does it do? Um, what is next? How, how, what should we expect? And we're all trying to work together. And I, I learned just as much from them. I hope that they learned from me. Um, and it was a really good experience, but yeah, a lot of the unknowns were there. But uh, one of the things we did was try to show them where we were at in the research. And we recently did a technique called single cell RNA-seq. Basically, this is where we go into the brain and we can tell what cell types are there and then what recipes they're making. And we we basically came up with a list of like 50 or 60 recipes, you know, that were not um, being made the right way, to, to put it um, in, in my, my favorite chef's uh, analogy here. But, um, but because of that, we now have targets that we know are altered in these, in these uh, the whack mutants that we made. And because of that, we now know that some of these are druggable and have FDA targets. So what we're doing right now, um, I have a student in my lab who's actually trying to take those targets, first validate um, where where in the brain they are changed. Because right now we have a list of cell types. We don't know exactly where the cell types are situated in the brain. And then um, if we can if we can find these areas, can we treat them with FDA approved drugs that will get into the brain to see if we can rescue any of our uh, the phenotypes we have in our animal model? I think that, I mean, as you're describing a lot of that, it's um, and because I have a lot of conversations with uh, with folks that are wonderful self-advocates or advocate for their children, um, I, th I think, and this is where I'd love for you to correct me if I'm wrong, is that the delineation that I see is that 
the work being done on on genes and even some of the gene therapies is not one that is i want to change who this person is i want to change how they perceive the world or how they interact with the world but it's more on what could be causing major disruption or medical sort of components that you know we can start to therapeutically look at or that you engage with the caretaker or the or the recipient of the treatment to say, you know, what are the things that we can help to support with through this process? Is that where gene therapy is is going? Because we could go in a different tangent, because I think that as a as a society, sometimes we we kind of start thinking, well, the worst case scenario is that I'm trying to reconstruct a whole person and what they're doing. Um, I don't think that's what what you're describing. Um, no. But am I, am I on the right path with you're totally right. Yeah. Our main concern are, are actually getting at the things that disrupt their lives. Um, so the big one is epilepsy and seizures. That's one we really want to find um, targets for. Um, other ones are just any type of behavior that could hurt someone or aggression. Um, so those are kind of the things that we're really looking out for in these. That's what the, we're hoping the gene therapies are really there for. I think it'd be, we're, we're probably not here yet, but like focal delivery of genes is probably possible, but delivery has always been an issue uh, to do this. But yeah, again, it, it goes back to, can we figure out where in the brain and when in the brain some of these behaviors that could hurt a person um, are arising and then try to treat that? Well, I might be I might be wading into the technical world right now. Um, so you're going to have to you're going to have to make sure that I understand the kind of what we're talking about as well. But um, you're also doing specific research on the P10 gene. And that has some significant understanding of the effects on the child's development. Mm -hmm. Can you give a little bit of background on that? Because I, when you're talking about you know, brain development, you're talking about which parts of the brain are most important. I would imagine that this research is guiding a lot of that as well. Yeah, so my lab and a lot of others have looked at P10 for a very long time. Um, P10, if, if you can imagine an assembly line that, that builds a product, P10 is at the very first step almost. Um, what P10 does is it's like the stop to the pathway. And this pathway that I'm talking about is one that builds things in the cell so it can grow, it can migrate, it can form synapses. But the, the real key here is growth. So, and this is the mTOR pathway again. So P10 stops mTOR pathway from being active. But when the pathway is active, your cells are dividing, they're getting bigger. Um, when they send out their processes, their axons and dendrites, they get bigger in the cell. So most of, almost everyone I know that has worked on P10, if you get rid of P10 or you mutate it, it allows the pathway to be overactive and therefore your cells grow really big. Um, and one of the consequences of this is a lot of individuals diagnosed with a P10 mutation have a larger head size or Megacephaly. And it's a lot of it is just this overgrowth. Um, this is something that we see in a lot of the other uh, genes in the pathway as well. Um, so you just get this overgrowth in certain areas of the brain. Um, the overgrowth that we think is happening in P10 has to do with the excitatory neurons. We think that might be part of what is causing the, um, um, the large heads. Um, we've looked at it with inhibitory cells. That's something my lab studies a lot of, but we don't see that. But they're really good at kind of 
getting into where the other cells are and kind of hanging out with them, but not really forming the big structures of the, of the brain. And, and I think that, I mean, when you're talking about excitation and you're talking about cell growth and, and everything that goes with that is that um, parents are going to walk away trying to figure out all of this information and how it applies to their everyday life. You've given some good examples on, you know, epilepsy. You've you've kind of clarified that, you know, what you might see is uh, hyperarousal or hypoarousal, depending on kind of what what sort of stimuli are affecting and what we think thought a lot of this was behaviorally oriented, um, you're seeing more of a genetic impact. Are there environmental conditions that activate any of these genes? Because I would imagine some of these genes exist in, in people not diagnosed with autistic disorder as well and aren't contributing in the same way that you're describing, or at least to the same level. Yeah, yeah that is a great question. Environment does play a major role. Um, I think we're still learning a lot about it. I have a colleague here that actually that's his main um, avenue of study is understanding how environmental things like pollution, for example, um, actually converge in people's bodies on some of these genes. Um, and actually his his research uh, has, I think, shown that um, there, there are some really high confidence autism genes uh, that are influenced by environmental factors. So it, it comes down to, I think, there can be a lot of causes that come to autism, but there has to be somewhere in the body where they converge. And I think I think the genes are probably um, one of the major parts. Yeah, and I mean, and it, I would imagine that the benefit of being at, at such a a well-supported research uh, environment is the fact that you all are able to collaborate. So you take your research, he's doing his research. Eventually, these things get combined into larger studies and that you start to learn more and more. But even right now is that there's there's those practical insights that lead to real life changes or real life examples or potential changes that we can start exploring. When you've met with families, because you're doing the research, but you're also doing the follow-up and kind of getting their feedback, I'm sure, is what sort of real-life examples does the understanding of one's child, I mean, what does that, what does that lead to for the family? Um, what's their feedback? It's a good question, because um, for, for a lot of individuals right now, we don't have good treatments. Um, and that's been one of the most frustrating things. And, and we all know that research takes a while, so it feels very slow um, to get answers sometimes. Um, other families where I have seen an effective therapy come through, it's been amazing. Um, there's another situation here of a lab that studies uh, childhood cancers. And because of that, they've, they've worked out and they've been a part of a team that has figured out, again, the pathway that's necessary here. And they have, um, again, a, a drug that crosses into the brain that inhibits the pathway. Well, they found out that this uh, particular patient had a mutation in that, in one of the key genes that drives the pathway. And they were actually able to effectively recruit the patient. Um, and after they knew the mutation, the, you know, the, the clinician and the, um, the basic researcher here worked together to actually provide this treatment. I think they just enrolled another one or two, and it was very effective. Um, so those are the ones that I, I really love thinking about because it is possible, but it really takes all these teams coming together. You have to know the basic science. Um, sometimes you have to know that a therapy is going to 
uh, work with that science and then you have to identify a mutation or something else in a patient. Like if it is environmental, is there a panel we can work up that will tell us what's going on and have an effective therapy? But I have hope because it's it's one of these things where I've seen it work. But again, there's so many that don't have it yet, and I would really like to get there. But yeah, that it's frustrating though. I think just to 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 know the mutation, but know there may not be much to do with. Uh, do about it right now, but I hope in the future we do have better answers as the science progresses. Yeah, I mean, that's where all these studies start from. It's gathering mm -hmm. all the information and understanding it all. And, and I think that we've done a much better job at being able to recruit more and more people mm -hmm. to help with the understanding of everything that's occurring um, genetically or even in, in other realms of treatment. Um, one, one of the questions I think that immediately comes to my mind is that I you're you're describing a lot of you know some of the very specific things that have value to understand at the moment and and I'm going to keep defaulting back to the fact that you know there is a, a a pretty high rate of epilepsy amongst some of the um uh autistic profiles would there be specific you know presentations that you'd say you know if you're seeing this, it's worth going in and doing a genetic screening now, even though there's not the information, because you're going to learn a lot at the moment just because of what you're seeing as a parent right now. I would, especially if you, the insurance can cover it. And epilepsy, definitely, because there are there's a lot of I, I think a lot of the, um, uh, the children that have been diagnosed here. Uh, have epilepsy seizures, things like that. Um, that's one I would just check because a lot of the things that can cause epilepsy, these are like little pores on our cells that allow chemicals in and out. Um, if you know what it is, then we can probably predict what type of um, anti-seizure medication is going to work best for you. Um, of course, some of them won't react, and I can tell you a story at, later about what I think is cool about, about a new therapy coming out. But um, I think the biggest thing, though, is you could spend years you know, getting a diagnosis or getting treated and never know. And the clinicians I've talked to here in our children's hospital have told me it might be better just to get get that off of the table. Just do the genetic test now rather than spend years trying to figure out, you know, all your symptomatology and what it is you might possibly have. Because if, if the test comes back and the, the mutation tells you a certain gene, it's going to educate everyone, including the clinicians, on, on how to uh, provide better treatment. And that education piece, I think, is so important. The When I'm thinking of how many ways that genetics can inform, hopefully over time, yeah, it's, I mean, you're talking on, you've already discussed med management, but you're also talking on, you know, the typical treatments as far as what you're seeing with applied behavior analysis is that if that clinician can understand a little bit more of the profile of who they're working with, guess what? They're going to be able to make better decisions, make better gains, and, and the treatments can be better. You see that in school. If you know that, you know, somebody is, their brain is processing information in a different way, well, you change the way that you're teaching to that individual. You're not going to necessarily always change the person, but it gives you insight. Where do yeah. you see the field going? Where do you see genetics being able to help the most in the future? And or is it this whole plethora of everything that's out there? Oh, it's a great question. Um, there's a few things. Um, something we're still struggling with is there is a, just a growing number of difficult to diagnose mutations. Um, 
So if you think about it again as a recipe, each one of these genes, um, you know, if someone tears off half the page, you know that the recipe is not going to be made. Um, and that's easy to predict. But if someone changes a single letter, we don't know if what's that going to do. Like, is, this, is a cookie still going to taste like a cookie, or have you changed a chocolate chip to a raisin cookie? Um, and that's what we really need to figure out. Um, we've designed, and other people have designed, ways to start screening these mutations so that they have a, an identity to them. But if you, when a clinician looks them up, they're called VUs, a variance of uncertain significance. I, I probably got that name wrong, but that's basically what it is. It means we don't know. Um, so that's a frustrating thing. And mo most of the mutations that I've seen in several of the autism genes I've looked at, or autism risk genes, are these VUs. Um, so we, we really want to give um, an impact to the mutation because it can do one, one of three things. Either the mutation does nothing. Um, we found that a lot of them actually uh, cause the protein to lose some type of function. So it's almost like you, you've lost, it's almost like you've lost the, the, the gene function anyway. But you can also have some that give it a new function. And that's what we want to screen out um, to, to understand that. Because you're going to treat a person differently if you think they've lost an important protein or if they've gained too much of a function of that protein. And that, that's really something that we still need to figure out. Um, the other big one is if, if we're going to do, if we want to replace genes in certain areas of the brain to try to treat things like epilepsy, we need good delivery methods. Um, there, viruses can work, but the body might um, build up antibodies and, re and reject that if you try a second, a second round of delivery. So we're looking for better methods. I think we just had a great, interesting revolution with the COVID vaccines using mRNA. Um, but, you know, Every year, we get better and better at trying to figure out um, how to deliver genetic material. Um, and it, it's holding promise. There's things like um, blood disorders and even eyes um, are being targeted right now because um, they're a little more easy to access than the brain. But I think as they work out the quirks um, in these other systems, it's going to get better and better uh, with delivery products. There's so much that we can learn and so much more information that's just going to strengthen the science. Mm -hmm. um, I I have something that I kind of want to move us down a little bit before we wrap up. But yeah. when when I'm thinking about, and I'm going to verge away from the diagnosis of autistic, autistic disorder, and I'm going to talk about anxiety, depression, uh, OCD, ADHD. A lot of these are treated with uh, psychopharmaceuticals. And I would imagine is that there is a a genetic component to how these drugs are going to work and affect in the body that we need to understand. Is there is there study? Is there research? Are you working on anything that is looking at, you know, when we're talking about treatment of some of these comorbid conditions that often align with autistic disorder? that we can understand med management that much better to say, you know, this would be the right anxiety medication because we understand this genetic profile? That is a great question. Actually, that's one of the things my colleague uh, Dan Campbell here does. Um, I, I know that there is an active study that he's working on uh, currently looking at how um, kids respond to risperidone. Um, and one of the ideas is that if you have enough samples, you might be able to understand if there's certain genetic um, profiles or certain backgrounds that might respond better than others. 
Um, so it is a thing. It's, it, it is being studied. Um, it, it probably is going to show that um, some some genes that we have are either going to make it better or worse. And it's it's one of those. I think we need a lot of samples to really get a good answer. But yes, yes. yes. I mean, I, I guess I'm always hopeful is that we're going to get to a world where we can be even more efficient with our care models. And a lot of things with with treatment and therapy is, you know, I need to try something and I need to learn from that even in the course of treatment. But the more research we can get prior to, the more accurate we're going to be on our first recommendation, our first prescription, our first um, chance at being able to help support somebody. Where can people get involved? I mean, you're doing some research, and I, I would imagine outside of the areas that you have specific clinics that are gathering that is that not many people are able to access or to be involved with this on a regular basis. Where can people go to look to say, hey, you know what, I want to be a part of the information gathering, or I want to potentially involve myself in some of these treatments that are out there? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and it's true. You know, we we go to work and we do our science and <laughs> we don't get out much, but <laughs> we, we do want to communicate that we're here. Um, you can email us. A lot of us have web pages where you can find us. You can ask us questions. Um, if I don't get all the list out today, you know, e email email a local scientist. Um, you can go to your research university and search up what, what we do um, and find us. Um, on the broader scale, if you wanted to get involved in studies or get um, more information, um, I'm part of the Autism Research Institute based in San Diego. That's a great group of people um, that fund research, but also provide a lot of um, stories and information. Uh, the Simons Foundation based in New York uh, does a lot of the, ge the genetic studies that led to a lot of what we know right now. They really funded a lot of that. Uh, they do recruit people um, for trials um, and they've had a lot of ongoing. They have, a, um, if you search up Simons Foundation, you can look at a lot of their autism uh, research as well. And there's several other foundations um, as well. Autism Speaks um, was a good one. And then um, uh, there's a few. I can't think of all of them off the top of my head right now. But yes, there are definitely foundations out there um, with a lot of family involvement, too. Um, and so their meetings are great. You can, again, contact them, get information, and they, they will. They do recruit and uh, have great websites. And with the rate of autistic disorder and the diagnostics rates continuously becoming more prevalent, I think even if it doesn't affect us today, there's a chance down our lineage that, you know, somebody, in our great-grandchild or our great-great-grandchild, or you know, it's going to hit home at some point for a lot of families. And one of the ways you can contribute now is is simply being a part of any of the research opportunities to bring more knowledge to the field. Um, is there is there I, I want to make sure that you have uh, a little bit of, of a chance to kind of maybe get us thinking or provoke some other additional <laughs> ideas. Um, what what would you be what would you be telling us as a as a field as clinicians as parents that you know. This is the value. This is where we need to be going. These are some future ideas that maybe we should start exploring. Um, do you have, I mean, kind of last thoughts on some of that? I do. Uh, well, first understand that we're all in this together. Um, we, I, I absolutely love meetings where I get to meet families and hear, um, you know, their take on things and, and just be able to communicate. Um, 
talk, reach out to us too. If you come across a paper and it's too jargony or it's hard to understand, reach out to us. We'll we'll talk with you and explain it to you. Just give us time to respond to the email because we we get a lot of those, but we'd be happy to. Um, in terms of going forward, I think in the last decade or so, there's been an amazing number of genes um, studied. We have more information now than we ever have before. And I think that's only gonna grow. Um, the thing I'm really looking forward to are starting to see more translational, uh, like clinical routes and, and things that could actually treat people. And um, a lot of this is, is because of like drug repurposing. And it's very specific sometimes to the, the the disorder, the syndrome that might be involved with autism. Um, another one that I'll just I'll shout out because I think it's it's coming to light very soon. A paper just came out on this, but um, even though I so the interneurons that um, that we work on are, are really interesting because when you put them into a brain, you can actually collect them or, or make them in a dish and then put them in like a cell transplant into a brain. Um, at least in rodents, these seem to be very effective at integrating into our brain circuits and quelling down any overexcitation. So overexcitation is something someone has in addition to autism or even other disorders like epilepsy. Um, these cells might be really good for this. So uh, two groups that I know have done it. Um, one has taken pig cells, um, pig inhibitory interneurons, and put them into um, sea lion. I, say, I think it's a sea lion. It might be a... <laughs> But its name is Cronut. It's a great story. Um, and these cells actually got rid of the, um, the seizures uh, in this model. This is Scott Barabin's lab at UCSF. Um, they did an amazing job. But these, the reason I bring this up is you know, cellular therapy might be something in the future as well. And then it would matter. That would be more of a, a treatment rather than a genetic therapy. You, know, you wouldn't have to go out and find a drug for a gene. Um, and there might be 100 something genes out there. This one, if 30 of the genes lead to epilepsy, maybe cell transplants could be something in the future. But it's still early days. Um, there's, there's a company now, too, that's trying it in clinical trials, just trying to see if they're safe. Um, we still have a lot to learn about the cells and how to make them. Um, but if, it's, if, it, if it works, it's great, because that's a, that's a way of like permanently uh, fixing the circuit and making it calm down and not be too excitable. So I'll I mean, leave it it, that, I think it's really cool. <laughs> but no, and, and it is. I mean, uh, oftentimes is that this is so far out of my realm of, of my direct understanding that just even hearing about these advancements is is exciting to know about. But it's it's can be scary at times just knowing, OK, yeah. so what, what does this mean? Where do we go next? What? But it sounds like the way that it's going through the research world, it's well thought out. People are thinking about, you know, what is it that we're, what's the intent? What are the, what are the possible kind of next steps? What is, what is it that could go that we need to make sure that we're accounting for so that nothing goes wrong with any of this? And that, those are the safeguards that, that I love about the research system is that it puts those in place so that we can really understand before moving too quickly. Um, I love all the work that you all are doing, and um, I think that as clinicians, the more that we can understand it, the better we're going to get at being able to, to utilize our treatments better. Um, so I appreciate you coming on today, Dr. Bowden, and, and giving us the opportunity to learn from your research and your knowledge set. And uh, hopefully I can start grabbing some of these papers and you might get some emails from me asking, asking hey. me for, hey, can you bring down the jargon? <laughs> so, but I appreciate it. 
Really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.